And uh, this is still Holy Week, and today is still Palm Sunday, as we've talked uh, already this morning. Um, and, you know, even though so much has changed around us, even though we don't have little kids coming in here this morning and waving palm branches in the air, um, it is still Holy Week, and, and we still get to, to celebrate uh, all that Jesus has done for us uh, during this time. And we're going to look this morning at uh, a Palm Sunday passage from John chapter 12. And what I hope is that um, as we look at this, we can better understand what God is doing right now, or, or at least better understand how we should uh, think and feel about God uh, during this crisis. And we're going to look at uh, this text, and, and John shows us uh, three different groups of people. And he kind of allows us to look at uh, Palm Sunday and the actions of Jesus through the sets of eyes of three different groups. Uh, a large crowd, uh, the disciples, and the Pharisees. Uh, and we're going to look at the crowd first. And as we do, let's read uh, the first little part of John 12, uh, verses 12 through 15 together. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And the first thing we see, uh, and really the first question that we need to ask as we start this passage off is, uh, during this crisis, do we expect Jesus to do something that he hasn't promised to do for us yet? I say that because as we look at this giant crowd, that's, that's kind of what they're expecting. There's this, this huge group of people, and even as we say that now during this time, uh, even as we look at this group of people in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, we are either extremely jealous of them or we are extremely nervous about what they're doing. Maybe we're jealous because these guys don't have to social distance. These guys don't have to quarantine. They can all be just together in this huge crowd. Some, some people say there could have been as many as two million people in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Or maybe this is making you all nervous. Maybe you're, you're, you're setting off alarm bells in your head, and you're like, are they six feet apart? Are they washing their hands? Or is there more, of ten, more than ten of them together at the same time? This is what this current crisis has caused us to do. It's caused us to think differently, even about stuff like this. This Passover is different from all the rest, not, not because of a, of a quarantine or social distancing, because of Jesus. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and it says the crowd laid palm branches down at his feet and shouted, Hosanna, and, and the word Hosanna means something like, God save us. We get it from Psalm 118, 25 through 27 where it says, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bowels in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. That word bowels in verse 27 was a, uh, there were branches that people would weave together that included palm branches. And so uh, during this week-long Passover festival, 
They would read these psalms, and when they got to Psalm 118, they read verse 27, they would take up these boughs, these branches, and wave them in the air. And this is a way that they would anticipate the coming of the future king of Israel. And the crowd believes that that future is now. They believe that Jesus is the king who has come to save them. But in what way? In, in what way do they want Jesus to save them? This is important. Look at what verses 17 and 18 say about some of the, the motivations of the majority of this crowd. It says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So a lot of people were drawn to Jesus because he performed these miracles. He provided a spectacle. It was kind of like they came to him for almost like entertainment value. So they, they thought, well, if, if Jesus can do these miracles, if he can even raise someone from the dead, maybe he can do the ultimate miracle and wipe out the Romans for us. You see, this is what most of these people were thinking. They thought that Jesus had come as king to save them politically at that time. He thought, they thought that, that he had come to save them from Rome. Now, it's not too hard to sympathize with them because life under Roman rule was terrible for these people. It was not a democracy. It was Rome's way or the highway. They were exploited. They were poor. They were fearful. And they wanted to be delivered. And this is completely understandable. And especially now, as we go through this, this COVID-19 crisis, we can completely understand how they would cry out to God, God, deliver us, save us. This is easy for us to understand now. I mean, every day I have been praying for God to save us. I've been praying for God to wipe out this virus. I've been praying for God to heal those who are sick with this virus. And I know that many of you are praying this way too. In fact, I think the whole world is praying this way. I, I saw a news report that uh, recently in the past month, Google searches for the word prayer are at an all-time high. They've never been higher than they are right now. People all over the world, the whole world, are desperate for God to save us. And we should be praying that way. We should be praying for, for Jesus to protect us from this virus and to protect our families and to rid the world of this virus and to restore what we've lost. We should pray for God to, to work so that soon we can gather here as a church again together and soon we can go back to restaurants and we can watch sports and we can go back to work. But... Do we expect, key word there, expect God to do something that he hasn't necessarily promised to do for us yet? This is the key question. It's, it may sound strange to you that I'm suggesting that God hasn't promised to save us from this virus right now. You know, God often did save people from suffering in the Bible, and he often still does save people from their suffering, but he doesn't promise that he will always do that. Sometimes he allows suffering to endure. Think of the Israelites. They suffered in, in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Think about how later on in their history, God sent uh, Assyria, and then Babylon to come and conquer Israel and then take them away into exile. 
And then think about what Jesus says in the New Testament. In Matthew 24, 9, he says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. And then we have Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, where he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. It was a thorn that he experienced. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God does not guarantee that we will be spared from suffering in this life. But he does, he does promise, absolutely promises, that one day he will end all suffering. There will be no more viruses. But that's not until Jesus returns in the second coming. And until then, we live in a fallen and broken world where, yes, God is merciful. And God helps us every single day. And God is gracious to us. But sometimes... God allows us to continue in suffering. And so, amidst our hope, amidst our our pleas for God to be merciful to our world and to do it soon, let's consider that he also may allow us to go through a prolonged period of suffering. Think back to our first Palm Sunday. Years, Years after this first Palm Sunday, uh, it, was, it was very clear that Jesus did not save the Jews from Rome. Because Rome, just 40 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, Rome sent a huge army to Jerusalem and completely destroyed it, completely destroyed the temple, and the Jews were dispersed. They did not get the type of salvation that they had hoped for from Jesus. Many of them suffered, and Soon after Jesus entered in Jerusalem that day, on that first Palm Sunday, many of them even deserted Jesus. And if our crisis continues, if this goes on for longer than we all hope it will, what are we going to think or feel about Jesus? There's a couple of different possibilities. One is we might become angry at Jesus and grow bitter towards him. The other is that we might draw closer to him. And I want to look at our next group of people, the Pharisees, and I want to see that they, they grew increasingly bitter toward Jesus. Look at verse 19. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees did not want people following Jesus. Their way of life depended on people following them. And they, so they added all these, these like nitpicky laws to the Old Testament. And they themselves were great at following these laws, but the people could not do it like they could. So the Pharisees, they appeared godly outwardly because of their external stuff that they did in public. But really, this had nothing to do with God, or very little to do with God. It was mostly for selfish gain. They used this, this sort of man-made religion to, to do what? Well, they, they gained power, they gained wealth, and they gained control through it. It gave them privilege. And Jesus, in numerous places in the Bible, rebuked the Pharisees for this. Look at Luke eleven forty six. 46. He says, Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. 
So Jesus was a huge threat to the Pharisees' man-made religion. And throughout the Gospels, you can see they increasingly grow bitter, more and more bitter towards Jesus because of this. So until now, they had confronted Jesus in small crowds, in small atmospheres, you know, 10 people or less. And, uh, and he would do something like heal on the Sabbath or claim to be God, and they would confront him and say, no, you're wrong, you, you can't heal on the Sabbath, you are not God. But now, as the people are flocking to Jesus, even if they are flocking to him for different motivations, the Pharisees see it and they are extremely threatened, they think, we have got to change our approach. And so, of course, later on throughout the week, you know, they go and they approach Judas and they, uh, they get him to agree to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of sil- silver. But you see, here's the point. The Pharisees kept Jesus at a distance. They kept God at a distance. They only wanted to depend on themselves. And so they rejected Jesus. They rejected that he was God's anointed one. They rejected God's plan, and they spiraled into bitterness. So what is bitterness really? Well, Tim Keller, as as so often he does, has a great way of putting this. He says that bitterness is believing God got it wrong. It being how life actually played out compared to what we hoped might happen with our lives. So our lives play out differently. We don't like it, and we, we start to dwell on this. We, we dwell on how, no, we deserve better. We deserve something different. We start to take our frustrations out on other people. Jennifer and I watched uh, the movie Instant Family not too long ago with uh, Marky Mark Wahlberg of Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. And uh, In this movie, he and his wife decide to foster three children, and, and one of them is a teenage girl who is a very bitter young lady. There's a point in the movie where she is, uh, she's with the foster mom and they're, they're straightening her hair. And it's, a, it's kind of a sweet moment. But then later on, she, the girl throws the straightening brush in the toilet. Like, why, why would you do that? Why, why would you take something like that that was a sweet and wonderful thing and then just throw it away? Well, later we find out that her, her biological mom would always help her with her hair. And And she was sad that she no longer was with her biological mom. So what was she doing? She was turning her heart off. She won't allow anyone to get close to her and potentially break her heart again the way her biological mom had done. She is turning her heart off, putting up walls, becoming bitter. And maybe that's how we feel towards God. Maybe not just right now, but maybe all the time. Maybe we are angry at God. Maybe right now we're... we're, frustrated with God for allowing this dumb virus to enter our world and interrupt our lives. Maybe this crisis is causing us to lose big. Maybe it's wrecking our dreams. Maybe we believe God is getting it wrong. I know I've thought that. My plea is that we would not turn our hearts off to God. The other alternative here, I believe, is for us to bring our fear, bring our anxiety, bring our grief to God. Not pretend like we don't have those things, but to bring them to God and draw closer to him. It makes me think of Jacob in the book of Genesis. You know, the name Jacob means deceiver, and Jacob lived up to his name. He would 
continually deceive people into getting what he wanted until one day God backed him into a corner. In Genesis 32, we read that Jacob uh, wrestled with what it calls a man in this, uh, in this little stream. And later on, the text says that the man was God. And during this wrestling match, God touched uh, Jacob's hip socket and dislocated it so that Jacob would always walk with a limp. But the other thing God did was he blessed Jacob. In fact, it says that Jacob would not let him go until he blessed him. So he blesses him and he gives him a new name. He calls him Israel and he says, you are now Israel, which means he wrestles with God. Can we go to God like Jacob did? Maybe we're frustrated. Maybe we're grieving. Maybe we're anxious. Let's not turn our hearts off. Let's instead run to God. Let's wrestle with him if we need to. Let's pray Take our frustrations, take our fears, take our anxiety and sadness. God wants to hear those things. He wants to know our hearts. He wants us to taste and see that he is good. Even in the midst of this crisis, he is good. And that he alone can satisfy our hearts and our souls. This week, a friend from Westtown sent me this little devotional called uh, Don't Waste This Crisis. And it had five points. And the last point was, You will waste this crisis if you think that surviving it is more important than cherishing Christ. I saw that, and I I was like stopped dead in my tracks, because that is such a, a, almost a harsh thing to say, but it's true. And and then it listed Philippians 3.8, where Paul says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. If Paul were here in 2020 and he lost the ability to gather with his friends or go to church and he lost the ability to go to work and he lost the ability to go to sporting events or even watch them on TV, even if he lost his health, he would say, I think it's okay as long as I can gain Christ. Because gaining Christ, knowing Jesus, is better than gaining any of my hopes and any of my dreams. Jesus' main concern is not our material comforts. He, he is concerned with those things. We, we read that in Matthew 6, that he cares about giving us what we need, but that's not his main concern for us. His main concern is not our timeline. It's not our calendar. If anything, one of the things I'm learning right now is Uh, write all of my appointments in my calendar with a pencil, metaphorically speaking, because I don't use a paper calendar anymore, but you you get what I'm saying. Like, it's all gone. He's wiped it out because it's his timeline. It's his calendar that matters. But Jesus is overall, his main concern is to be our Savior. His main concern is that we come to him for more than just wealth and health and, and favorable circumstances. Yes, come to him with those things, ask him for those things, but let that not be the only thing that we ask him for. He wants us to just just to come and be with him, to put our hope in him, put our hope in him that he is the one who will lead us through this mess. And that's what I want us to think about as we look at our last group, uh, which is the disciples. We know if you've, if you've ever done anything where you've read through Holy Week, you know that the disciples had a rough time. Uh, Peter denied Jesus three times. Most of them 
after Jesus was arrested, most of them fled. Really, John was the only one who seemed to have stuck around. Uh, And as John talks about this, he does so with great compassion for his friends. Um, But this is the question that we've got to ask. Can we trust King Jesus as he leads us through this mess? Can we trust him? Look at what John says in verse 16 about the disciples. At first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. They, they didn't get what was going on until after Jesus had even risen from the dead. And it says until after he was glorified, which means they really didn't get what was going on until he, after he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. So what I'm, what I'm thinking is that maybe they didn't get what was going on until God sent them the Holy Spirit to help them understand everything that was going on. See, they, Jesus had been telling them throughout the Gospels, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be given over to the authorities there. They're going to kill me, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. Jesus has told them this, and they didn't believe them, that, that this is possible. But think about it. It had to be so difficult in the moment for them to just to even understand what he was saying because they're watching their friend, the one that they trusted, the one they loved, the one who never let them down. They're watching him get on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem where almost everybody either wanted to make him king by force or kill him. He didn't ride away from trouble. Look at this. He, he rode into the thick of trouble, into the lion's den. And the disciples were so confused. What is going on? Jesus, this can't happen. You can't do this. But he had to. He had to. He, King Jesus had to take the path of humility, the path of lowliness, the path toward the cross, into a mess, into a week filled with false accusations, betrayal, arrest, an illegal trial, torture, and then death. And then worse, the worst thing of it all was he had to face being forsaken by his father while on the cross. What a mess. And again, now is, is a time when we can relate to this. 2020 is a mess. In, in fact, I am advocating, let's just move on to 2021 as soon as possible. Let's change New Year's Day to the day that we get out of quarantine. That'll be the new New Year's Day, and we'll start over with a new year. That's how I feel right now. I'm, I'm done. But as crazy as this is, I daily am finding that I just, I don't know what to believe. I don't, I don't know what's right. I don't, I look at worldometers and I read the numbers and I look at, I've looked at more graphs this past couple of weeks than I ever did in like pre-calculus. Are the numbers accurate? I mean, how many cases are there? How long will this last? When will the peak happen? Are, are we really going to see death the way the president suggested earlier this week? Will the economy recover? I don't know. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why God is allowing this kind of suffering. I I have ideas. I have opinions. But I don't know. I don't have answers. And I'm confused. I can relate to the disciples' confusion. And I think that's okay. 
I think it's okay that we don't have the answers. I think it's okay that we don't really know for sure what God is up to right now because we know what God has already done. King Jesus got on a donkey. And in doing so, he fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy even as he goes into the lion's den. He was and he is king. He rode directly into the mess to save us, but to save us from what? Not to save us from Rome, not to save them from the Pharisees, not to save them from poverty or from from a lack of political power. No, for us today, his, his main goal, his main accomplishment was not saving us from COVID-19. It's not saving us from quarantine. It's not saving us from a, a struggling economy. Those are not our greatest enemies. Our greatest enemy is sin. COVID-19 can cause physical death, but sin causes eternal death. Sin separates us from God forever, and only King Jesus can save us from that enemy. So he got on a donkey, he rode into Jerusalem, and that's exactly what he did. He saved us from sin by his death on the cross. He knew that's what, he need, that, that's what we needed most, even if no one else knew that. So two very quick things as we, as we wrap this up. One is right now, even in the midst of this huge mess, we need to understand that sin is still the worst thing we face. Have you cried out to Jesus to save you from your sin? Have you cried out to him, Hosanna, save me? If not, what is stopping you? What is stopping you from turning away from your sin and following Jesus? And then two, If you already belong to Jesus, if you already have cried out to him to save you from your sin, then do not fear. Your worst enemy has been defeated. It's over. It's done. Jesus said it's finished. So we can trust Jesus as he works in this mess, as we follow him through this mess. Matt Chandler says it this way. Pay attention because God works in the mess. And if you're paying attention when you read the Bible... When it's your turn to walk through the mess, you'll be confident that God is working in the mess. It is our turn to walk through a mess right now. That's what the church is doing. That's what we're all doing. But because we know Jesus, because we know he has already gone ahead of us into the greatest mess there ever was, our sin, our brokenness, and he has defeated that enemy decisively once for all, then we can be confident And without a doubt, God is also working in this mess too. And we can be confident and we can be hopeful. I do not know what's going to happen over the next days, weeks, months. But I know that God knows. I know he knows what he's doing. I know that we can trust him and draw near to him as he leads us through this mess. Let's pray.